Okay, welcome back everybody, uh, colleagues in the room and those online for the second session of uh, today's event on uh, fiscal policy and income inequality. In the second session, we'll be narrowing down the focus to gender inequality specifically and, and what we know about how fiscal policy affects the gaps and, and differences in income in particular between women and men. Uh, this draws, uh, we'll be hearing from the start from, from Laura Bramowski, who's co-author of a report that's just been published together with Irene Selwanes, who's also here in the room today. The report, you, for those of you in the room, you would have hopefully received a copy, otherwise you can, you can uh, access it on the ODI website. Um, so please do go and, and read it, but, but Laura will be giving us a brief overview of the paper. Uh, we will then have a discussion, much like we did in the earlier session, with our distinguished uh, panelists, and I'll introduce them briefly. Again, it's an honor, and, and thank you so much for contributing to the discussion today. Susan Harkness, um, Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Center for Poverty and Social Justice at the School for Policy Studies at the University of Bristol. Flora Miamba, Executive Director and Senior Expert for Gender and Social Protection at uh, Women and Social Protection Tanzania. Thank you for being here. Sarah Reich, Head of Research and Policy from the UK Women's Budget Group. And online we have Alvin Musioma, Division Director, Fiscal Justice, uh, OSF, um, Open Society Foundations, and Founding Executive Director of Tax Justice Network, Africa. Welcome, Alvin, online as well. Thank you for joining us. So we'll start with Laura, your, your presentation, and then have a discussion. Just a quick word also, as previously, as, as in the previous session, for those that are following us online, do submit your questions uh, via the Q&A uh, online. Thank you. So um, we are now going to move from vertical income inequality to um, gender income inequality. So between uh, men and women. Um, so before starting looking at the impact of fiscal policy, I wanted to give you some very um, high level idea of the economic gaps between uh, genders. And the gaps are really substantial, persistent. Some of them have been uh, narrowing uh, recently and ha some have not. And in addition, there, there is a big challenge, even bigger challenge to measure resources at the individual level um, between, and hence understanding differences between men and women. Despite all of this, we do know a lot of um, facts. And so, for example, this first figure shows um, the income share. So if you look at all um, labor income across in each economy, you assign how much is accrued to women and how much is accrued to men. Um, you see that across all regions in the world, women accrue less than 50%. In some cases, just around 10%, for example, in, in Middle East and uh, Northern African regions on, Afri on average. Of course, there is variation, um, variation within regions across countries, but this, this shows quite a staggering um, 
picture about this type of inequalities across genders. And you see that women have been uh, accruing a bit more of labor um, income shares over time. But for example, there are some regions like Sub-Saharan Africa, it's quite flat, or um, China, for example, the share has been going down. So this is take the pie of labor income and divide it between men and women in a country. Mm -hmm. And so this, for example, says that in, um, to, in 1990, in Middle East and Northern African countries on average, women, adult women, only got just about 10% of total labor income generated in that region. Oh, sorry, <laughs> growth, okay, okay. So this is, as far as I understand, free, free tax, sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so employment and uh, pay gaps. So this also shows a lot of variation across um, regions and it shows as well the difference. So, so this shows whether the probability that women um, that women work relative to um, men, and also the if they work, the pay gap. And so you can see they are far away from uh, gender parity, and it varies across time, across regions. But the gaps remain, and they are quite substantial. Um, one. So, so there are other inequalities in, in other type of income. So I talk about labor income and about this labor income, you can think about employed, being employed determines how much you can earn, but once you are, have a job, how much you work, uh, the type of job, how much you are paid per hour, all that determines how much you earn in total. There are other type of inequalities in capital income, wealth, we know very little, but there are some estimates in some countries that show they are even bigger than labor um, income inequalities. And, but I wanted to, with this figure, also uh, talk about the, the other side of the same coin. So we talk about inequalities in paid work in terms of being able to work or how much you earn if you work. But this mirrors an inequality on the other side on the distribution of unpaid work. So if you look at this graph, this shows the hours per day men and women spend in unpaid work. And unpaid work here are chore, household chores and, and caring for children or the elderly. And you see that the light blue is always across all regions higher than the, than the deep blue and that the gap is quite substantial like um, women uh, in general do double or more uh, the time of uh, the, the number of hours of unpaid work at home per day and, and this is all obviously going to affect how much they can work for a pay and hence their uh, income earnings and their ability then to accumulate other type of assets that will have an impact on other type of uh, like capital income, for example. So why do we care about this? I know you all care because you're here, 
but uh, but but just to 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 um, put it in perspective beyond our community. So we, of course, we it matters in terms of fairness, and 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 it's a human. It's considered human rights, so equality, particularly of opportunities, but in general, like access to the law and many other dimensions of gender inequality are considered human rights and they are reflecting a sustainable development goal number five. It also relates to income inequality that we just discussed in the previous session. So if we think about income inequality as being a, a social goal, gender uh, and in gender in income inequality and income inequality are usually quite positively correlated across countries. Uh, so if you care about income inequality, you should care about gender income inequality. Uh, but it also affects economic growth. Um, and there are different studies that have estimated macroeconomic gains from gender equality, and they can be quite substantial. And there are different mechanisms um, that explain um, why narrowing the gaps and promoting gender equality on human capital accumulation, the distribution of talent uh, across uh, jobs can improve productivity, management practices, and economic growth. So what I'm going to focus, so again, the report is quite, um, is, is as comprehensive as possible. There is very um, scarce evidence on the impact of fiscal policies, and particularly on this idea of fiscal uh, fiscal system, taxes and benefits in kind and uh, in cash together on gender income inequality. But there is some evidence, and I think uh, one um, important aspect of the fiscal system that is very relevant for gender income inequality is direct taxes and cash transfers. So we have evidence mostly from European countries that show that the combined impact of direct taxes and cash transfers um, is, reduces gender income inequalities, equalizing across genders. But of course, that the, the, the impact varies across different types of instruments and different types of uh, demographics between, so for example, ages, whether how you have kids or you don't have kids, for example. So the evidence shows that cash transfers are more impactful than direct uh, taxes, except for old age pensions. So in most European countries, old age pensions increase the gender gap, particularly when these uh, pensions are linked to labor market histories. And this, brings, this connects to these slides I show you at the beginning, these facts and the importance of thinking about, it. when you think about gender income gaps, the importance of also thinking in employment gaps between gender, because it's a key determinant of this type of inequality. Um, the equalizing effect of the direct taxes and cash transfers combined is higher for women in couples with children, and that is because of the design uh, of the system that targets um, people in lower incomes and households with kids and people that are the main care. So if, if not because the system particularly um, targets women, what 
it's like explicit uh, target, you know, or bias against women, but it's like what it's called in the literature implicit um, indirect impact. So it's because of the patterns of work um, that differ between women and men at home and in paid jobs. And because this leads to women may, being the main care of, of, of family members and um, if they have a family, if they are single, it's different. And I think Susan will talk about that quite a lot. Um, and because this leads them to earn less than, than um, men, so they are overrepresented on the lower parts of the distribution, in, in these uh, systems that are progressive overall, it tends to be um, equalizing between men and women. And that's uh, quite important. And it's it, because of the mechanisms what I just described and, and the context in different countries, this has the potential to be um, to hold true across countries to varying degrees, of course, um, but, but that's quite relevant across countries. As I said, it's important to think about returns to employment and how the fiscal system affects employment and hence income generating opportunities. Um, and in general, um, Progressive personal income taxes and cash transfers can, not always, the evidence, if not, it depends and varies a lot across the income distribution and across demographic, but can decrease the return to formal employment because the returns after tax flow, if you have a progressive, the more you work, the more you earn, you get less. And if you have a progressive cash um, transfer uh, and a cash, a cash transfer that gives you money if you're out of work, the, the opportunity cost of going to work increases because you lose some benefits. So that's uh, quite standard, but it's quite interesting to understand how this, uh, the effect of this mechanism varies um, across demographic and across women. So in general, evidence from OECD countries suggests that these um, second earners in couples face higher disincentives from this mechanism I just uh, described. So higher, it's higher for second earners with children when the system has family-based elements of taxation and benefits, such as household income-based uh, child or pension benefits. And this is uh, quite relevant, for example, in the US where you have, you pay income tax on your joint income, the joint income of your household rather than on the income you earn as an individual. And so the incentives to work can be quite different to in a joint um, system rather compared to an individual uh, one. But as well as the personal income tax, you may have elements of the benefit system that also play this dynamic between individual or joint um, based uh, tax and benefit system. And it's also relevant when thinking about employment uh, incentives. There is little evidence outside the OECD countries, there is some evidence from recent evidence from Latin American countries that because of what uh, I just said and because of the cash transfers being targeted to lower income households and, and, and women being more likely to have lower income and being informal and being having less skills because of less opportunities for education, they face a higher disincentive to get a formal job from this targeted progressive formal system. Um, so I discussed all the different instruments and how they interplay 
given the evidence and in, in the absence of evidence, what the principles can tell us um, in, in detail. But what I think we can take away from, from the report is that fiscal policies can reduce gender income and opportunity gaps. And there is um, there are key principles that are important to, to, to take into consideration. So for all countries, improving the progressivity of the tax benefit system will, because of, will improve, um, narrow the gap between genders in income. The incentives to work for second earners can be improved um, in different ways. So, and because second earners are usually women in, 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 in couples, um, that matters a lot. So improving the tax benefit system, as I said, for example, removing in joint or family-based elements of benefits and how your income is taxed away. And thinking about parental leave. So paid parental leave, and I'm thinking here not only about um, mothers, but also fathers' parental leave and how you share that. The evidence is not uh, super conclusive that extending parental leave as long as and as high the level of, of the remuneration you get and the month you get the benefit for, the more you get, the better um, you will be because it decreases your incentives to go back to work. And hence, it um, can, there is some optimal level of, in terms of duration and level of, of, of um, parental leave. That, that is usually thought ideal. Um, affordable high quality childcare services, of course, that would be, is, is an important angle given the main emphasis of women as uh, main carers. But again, it's something that I think it will improve the opportunities to go back to work, but it has to, the, this debate has to go broader and think about childcare services for families with kids rather than only women, just thinking a bit broader. Uh, in lower income countries, there is an urgency to narrow gaps in opportunities through income transfers in health and education. So there is, still remains big gaps between men and women that in higher income countries are not there. And not only in terms of access or so primary education, for example, access has narrow in most countries, but the quality or the, uh, the attainment of, of girls continue to be lower because they drop off of high school, for example, of because, or even because they don't attend, even in extreme role, they don't attend primary school. The other important angle that there is very little evidence in terms of incidence and distributional analysis, but it's very, it's, a, it's, it's known to be very important is infrastructure that lowers women's time use on unpaid work. And so in lower income countries, we are thinking about fetching water, having to, um, go to a very far away area for sanitation purposes uh, and many like cooking and what technology you can use uh, for cooking. So if thinking about those type of policies in infrastructure can also change uh, gender income inequality. But in any case, I think one of the important, important takeaways is that we need to invest in better data that is disaggregated by gender for tax analysis, for spending analysis, for income, how do we measure resources 
at the individual level when household surveys are usually capturing most of consumption and non-earned income and earned income at the household level. So all these are uh, conceptual and measurement challenges that we have to do better at. Um, I said I already talked about uh, direct tax, and the, um, I think the conclusions are very similar to what we discussed in the previous session because it's about making the tax and benefit system and the direct tax system more progressive, and we discussed ways of doing that. I think in terms of work incentives, I mentioned um, removing elements of joint taxation and, and some tax uh, credit elements. I want to take the opportunity to talk about indirect tax because I think there is a lot of um, hype about using VAT exemptions to uh, favor um, to, to, to favor women, in particular, for example, exempting menstrual hygiene products very, very particularly as a way of advancing gender uh, equality goals. And, and I think this, the, the, the evidence is not there that this is a good instrument to, to do this. And it's actually, potentially, I, I consider it to be quite a distraction from the important things we should be talking about. So in general, VAT, as I said before, is, is very good tool to raise revenues, to fund more equalizing spending. And having a lot of exemptions and reduced rates, including for these uh, products that are consumed solely by women, are uh, captured by the better off, being men, women, households that are better off. So in a way, you are giving a lot of revenue that you could have um, collected to people that do not need it. Um, so i rather use that revenue to fund cash transfers that are targeted to lower income households or subsidize products in lower income areas for schools or provide sanitary pads to in certain geographical areas as a way of targeting rather than providing blanket exemptions for goods that are highly that are consumed by women. In terms of the other um, tax instruments, uh, indirect tax instruments or so excises I think is similar to what we discussed before. We can use them to achieve some social goals like uh, decreased smoking rates or eat less sugar. And it applies the same way, use that money to fund more equalizing or including those that promote uh, gender equality uh, spending. Tariff, there's quite a lot to do there. I was surprised, I thought I was not going to find much on how tariffs are designed and how this could vary across genders. And there, there, is, uh, there are instances of explicit bias uh, against products that um, are consumed by women. So for example, in the US, there were higher tariffs to apparel for women, right? compared to, <laughs> don't ask me why, but that's, for example, one example. And so clearly there is room for improvement um, a lot of lobbying as well has to be done there. Um, in terms of transfers and indirect subsidies, I think given, uh, given what I said in terms of income and work patterns, I think non-contributory transfers seem best tailored at reducing gender income gap today is because 
most women have weaker labor market att attachments. So if that's, that's quite relevant. However, as I said, you have to consider contributory transfers if you want to also improve at some margins work incentives. Um, I think the rest is, I said it one way or, or another already. Um, and I will stop here unless I have one more minute. Stop, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to talk briefly about family-based policies because I think these are big, big, um, they are important policies in higher income countries. They are developing in, uh, they are relevant in middle income countries and there are some lower income countries considering it some way or another, even if just very nascent and very small. Um, so there is no evidence on parental leave and childcare subsidies on income gaps today. And the evidence on the impact of these policies on employment outcomes is inconclusive. So as I said before, countries with relatively long periods of pay parental leave could consider shortening this. So for example, there are some countries that provide two years of pay parental leave and this uh, affects women's attachment to labor market and the type of jobs they do and their career progressions and hence income going forward. Um, the other important consideration is to provide greater parity in terms of maternity and paternity leave uh, including earmarking leave for fathers, because these for couples with children, not for all women, but for those women, um, will generate a better share of unpaid work and attachment with this type of chores in the household that could potentially in, improve this uh, distribution going forward, not only when the, the kids are babies. Um, so subsidies to quality childcare services, I think, Yes, they have to. There are many parameters that you have to take into account. Um, they have to be during working hours. So, providing three hours a day of childcare subsidies may not be relevant for lower income households at all because they cannot access jobs. So, it's a bit of a they end up being captured again by, by, by women that maybe didn't have that binding constraint and were in working already and get a subsidy for their checker. Maybe we want to do that, but it's a conversation we have to take to, to, to have and a decision to take with this information at hand, I think. Um, and I think this I already said before and it applies to tender income inequality as well. Thank you, Laura. This is, thank you. That's a fantastic overview of all the evidence. I think if you're, you're filling a, a big gap there in terms of the, the international evidence on this and highlighting, giving us examples of explicit bias uh, against women that these, some of these uh, policies or trans and, and, and systems uh, incorporate and indeed the way they may replicate or even reinforce inequities because of how the system or or individual policies interact with existing, frankly, quite glaring inequalities that are that are persisting, uh, particularly in, in, in with respect to the labor market as you were, and, and the distribution of paid and unpaid work. Uh, but we'll we'll turn to our panel, and I'm going to turn to Susan first. So Laura, coming back to the question, um, partly around the distribution of unpaid of unpaid work and and the impact of of maternity on 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 women's 
career progression, wage progression, and so on. Could you tell us or talk us through um, examples of how in, in the UK or in high income countries, um, fiscal policies may have been used to mitigate or, or may have conversely aggravated uh, income inequalities as a okay. result of, of, um, of these differences? Yeah, let me say a few words. So just as a sort of starting point, I think the graph that's behind me um, just illustrates the sort of differences in taxes paid by men and women. So the blue bar shows how much tax in the UK um, men are paying at different ages. The orange is how much women are paying. And then the gray and the yellow just tell us how much more tax we could get if we had gender equality. So just I wonder about the sort of first point, if we had gender equality, we would have a 40% increase in our tax take. Women pay considerably less, more, less tax. Uh, than men. And, you know, so I think promoting gender equalities would be really beneficial for um, uh, improving our tax base as well. So I just wanted to start, start there. Um, now, in terms of what works for promoting gender equality, um, I think Laura's mentioned two things, and I think the research base really tells us an awful lot about, first of all, family leave, family leave matters. I completely agree with your point that too long family leave has been shown in some studies to be detrimental. But what's really important is that women can return to the same job after they have a child and returning to work, that ability to return to work and not to be kicked out and have to restart your career is really, really crucial. And the evidence in that is really strong. So leave matters, but it matters most because it allows people to go back to the same job. Uh, the second thing that matters is childcare. And again, I agree, the structure of childcare really matters. So childcare for child development purposes, which has been to some extent in the UK, there's some evidence that hasn't been great for employment, but I think the international evidence base, uh, the work of Daniela Del Boca, shows childcare really does matter. Now, the third thing that matters is fiscal policy. So I'm really pleased because I think there's been a real absence of um, you know, discussion of that recently. And just to talk about the UK context, I mean, in the UK's context, we moved to a system of individual taxation in 1990. We know from the international evidence that individual taxation is much better for female employment than for promoting female employment than household-based taxes. So you mentioned the US, for example, and we've certainly seen this move well, in, in the US towards more family-based um, tax assessments. Now in the UK, we've got, um, we've had individual taxation since the 1990s. And if we think about the motivation for it, it was really very much about a promoting gender equality, uh, giving, giving women sort of access to their own independent resources. And if there was criticism at the time of independent taxation, it was really focused around the idea that it would be, as indeed you've said about some of the other policy levers, middle-class capture. Um, as you know, there's also been counter arguments by the provision of childcare as a sort of middle class capture of childcare. Um, now, of course, since 1990, there's been a really significant increase in female employment. And so many, many women have benefited from um, the fact that we've moved to a system of individual taxation. Um, now, at the same time, or since since the sort of new labor era, what we've seen at the same time, however, is the rollout of tax credits and in work support. So what we now have, I think, to some extent, is this system of taxation, which is very much individualized for those on higher incomes, but very much means tested for those on lower incomes. And I think this for gender equality is really problematic. So that would be my sort of starting point. And I've only got four minutes. So let me make one more distinction. And that is between singles and couples. And I think there's really important distinctions here between 
how um, taxes affect. So Laura's mentioned, for example, the disincentive effects of uh, means testing on second earners. This is really, really important. Um, and what I think we see when we have high levels of means testing amongst couples with children is that there is a disincentive to work. And indeed, I've done some work with Martin um, uh, on this, although it's probably a little bit old now, probably needs a bit of updating. <laughs> um, now, so there's a disincentive of work and clearly means testing in terms of uh, promoting intra-household gender equality is not going to be great. Um, on the other hand, for singles, we've seen that the um, move to tax credits, for example, in work support has been thought to be beneficial for promoting work. Um, but there is a massive caveat there. So now we've got more women working but they face extraordinarily high marginal tax rates. So we've kind of, you know, had this policy to get single parents into work. That's helped remove them from poverty, sometimes just above the poverty line. Um, but it, it means they often face 80% plus tax rates. And we know, you know, if we go back a few years, it may not be quite as bad today, but it's um, that there were more single parents being means tested than they would measure a single parent. So it's pretty much a universal experience. And I think this is the IFS data shows. So actually the capacity of women to support themselves when they have children, it seems to be quite limited and it's not really promoted by the tax system. So I actually have a second slide here, which kind of shows you what the, although if you look at, for example, New Zealand, Australia, uh, the UK oh, is not there, I thought it might have been, but we can see that whilst the system in terms of the average tax rate sometimes is negative, um, average tax rates, which means that women are getting um, some, you know, reimbursement from the system, marginal tax rates are extraordinarily high. And what this effectively means, I think, is that whilst it provides some economic security, it doesn't really provide very much opportunity. And we get this massive clustering of people around the poverty line. So I think the treatment of singles uh, is really important um, in the tax and benefit system. And this problem of sort of incredibly high marginal tax rates in some countries, including the UK, is massively problematic. We have a different problem for couples where we disincentivize work. But I would say that many of those couples are going to be low income couples and they may well up, end up being single parents. You know, we have quite fragile families. There's a lot of movement between single, being a single parent and being a couple, repartnering and so on. And so I think it has quite important long term sort of dynamic implications. I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Susan. Very, very important um, and fascinating points. Uh, and I'm turning to Alvin now online. Um, we've just heard from Susan about, well, especially the, the experience of the UK uh, and some dynamics that apply to, to high income countries. Could, could you talk to us about um, your, your experience, particularly in some African countries and examples or, or policy opportunities going forward of, of addressing uh, employment and income gaps between men and women via the tax and transfer system. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, just to pick up, I think there is a very important point that um, Laura has made, which I think requires more debate. And, and this is the issue about that we can collect regressively so long as we are, um, we are um, spending progressively. And this particularly on the point of, um, of the, role, the role of VAT and the arguments that have been made about how um, regressive uh, VAT can be. And I think 
what we note here, one of the strongest arguments that comes out of that is that because particularly in many African countries, there is lack of gender disaggregated data, what then happens is that policy decisions, particularly on, on the tax side, are being made without a very clear fiscal instance analysis. Um, so lack of data um, leads to kind of decisions that are being made both on, on, on the tax side that can have or would have um, a serious impact on, uh, on, on particular on women. The second point I'd like to make um, is that I think when we think about, um, generally we look at the, the tax structure of, of, many, of many African countries and the trends we are seeing, I think there are a few things that stand out that requires um, a debate in terms of when you see a, a tax structure that is more generally regressive, um, it is obvious to argue that the impact of a generally a general regressive tax system impacts on women uh, more than it would be on men, considering the, the levels of um, where women are economically in the in the in the economic in the in the economic structure. So we you find that in, at least in many African countries that are being on one side characterized by very low um, uh, tax revenues. You look at the, the tax to GDP le levels of many of many African countries. You look at the level of informality that was raised earlier and, and who is actually in those um, informal sectors, who many of them tend to be to be women. Um, you see on the on, on one side um, again uh, a very a very uh, narrow tax base that is really really heavily reliant on, on indirect taxes on VAT. Uh, on, on, on excise tax and on, on custom duties and with, with, with statistics showing that uh, in average in the continent, um, uh, consumption taxes or indirect taxes consist of about 50, 49 to 50% um, of, uh, of, uh, of, of the total tax take. And then on the other side, um, the kind of ineffective tax administration systems that uh, are characteristic of many of the, of the African countries, the capacity uh, to administer uh, tax systems that are considered to be complex. So there's little appetite to, to uh, administer tax systems or tax instruments that are considered to be complex and hence the kind of general approach of, of low-lying low fruit. So the, the dependency and the reliance on, 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 um, on, on um, Consumption taxes is also linked directly to, to the capacity of revenues and the argument that uh, these are the easy to collect taxes and therefore, if we can be able to, once we collect those resources, um, we can be able to, to, to spend them in, in programs that, uh, uh, social programs that benefit, benefit the women. But I think the question then comes into that is, once that money has been collected, where does it go? Uh, which is, I think, a very important question, particularly um, at a time now when we see many governments having forced to make trade-offs between uh, the growing size of debt, so a big chunk of, uh, of, of the money that the taxes that are being collected are being, are being big portion of that is, is, is being used for, 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 for debt servicing, investment in infrastructure, and with, with little left for public spending and, and investment in, in, a, in, a, in a social, in social, social programs. So based on that, I think on, on your question where I see um, going forward some um, some opportunities, I think there's conversation that has been made about um, 
the taxation of, of, of wealth. I think that provides a huge, a huge potential. Uh, there have been examples, and some were cited in Ghana, in, in, in Uganda, uh, countries that have tried to um, introduce uh, taxes that is targeting um, the wealthy, and particularly in, at that period when, when we are seeing uh, a huge level of wealth concentration and a growing number of super rich in many of these countries. I think thinking around how do we capture tax from 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 this from this sector is very important. Despite the challenges uh, we see in many countries that have tried that, including uh, the political will, because many of these uh, wealthy elites also um, the political decision makers in that sense. There's very limited um, uh, uh, data about about, and I think the colleague from Ghana did make this uh, uh, um, statement about that in terms of finding out because of lack of data to be able to know what how do you actually target these people, and then the lack of uh, of the lack of the the legal framework. And lastly, I think uh, investing in information technology is is really critical in terms of the capacity of of, of ICT and growing digitalization we are seeing across. Um, the, the, the African continent think will contribute in terms of our capacity to grow the tax base, uh, to monitor compliance, and uh, and detect 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 evasion. I think um, there is uh, a statement that is always made about tax compliance or, or non-compliance is directly linked to the incentive or disincentive that uh, is created that can ensure that uh, uh, the, the 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 taxpayers are. are, are complying with the tax obligation and this is linked number one to um, the the question of um, will I get caught like what are the systems in place that um, if I don't pay my the tax that I'm, I'm supposed to will I get caught or if I get caught will I get uh, punished and if I get punished how how high is the punishment so across these different value chains I think in investment in in, in information technology and uh, uh, and uh, investment in digitalization will make a significant contribution in terms of that effort of, of widening the tax base, but even addressing uh, informality. We have seen, for example, in Kenya here, and I think a few years ago when the government uh, made it mandatory for, um, for taxpayers to um, provide information and PIN numbers of uh, their landlords. And this basically was an effort of government to try and capture revenues and try to compile um, um, information between uh, um, declarations that are being made by, by individuals, that particularly the, the, the property, the property owners. And then the last point I think, which is which is which is really critical, is how um, information is being shared between. Um, the different government agencies and government authorities. I think there is really a huge space here for leakages uh, in terms of how uh, information even from, from the revenue authority uh, is being shared with the, with the um, other, other relevant oversight bodies. So ensuring that there's a synchronization uh, in terms of how the data is generated, how the data is processed, how the, how the data is shared between the different um, uh, units will significantly contribute to addressing some of the um, some of the incentives that that encourage tax, tax non-compliance, but also particularly uh, tax evasion at the, at the domestic level. Thank you, Alvin. Um, thank you for for raising some very important also question marks around linking back to some of what's been said before around, for instance, 
uh, yes, raising revenue, but then how do we secure how it's the ways in which it's spent once it's raised, uh, say via consumption taxes, the opportunities, but also some of the uh, challenges associated with taxing wealth or high net uh, worth individuals that we talked that we heard about the opportunities linked around and but also some of the risk around data and improving data uh, management and exchange and communication. So thank you for all these points. Uh, I'm going to talk to Sara now to come back to one of the issues that also has been already um, touched upon uh, on some of the trade-offs or tensions between means testing and, and universal provision of services and indeed uh, transfers or cash transfers that, that are matter in particular to, to, to women that are due to the unequal distribution of uh, unpaid work. So particularly when it comes to childcare or child benefit, uh, what what are some of these trade-offs and where do you see on the basis of the UK experience or elsewhere um, are some of the issues and the ways forward to, to resolve some of these tensions? Well, um, I think when we're talking about trade-offs and we are when we are considering where what to prioritize spending on, I think it's also important to consider what the different benefits or what the different spending is for. So child benefit, uh, and, and I, I very much speak for, for the, from the UK's experience, which is uh, our kind of expertise. Child benefit is a benefit that is supposed to help with the cost of raising children. Um, and so it used to be universal. Um, now there's a, a charge uh, for high income households. And again, this, as was raised before, is, is problematic. Um, because uh, you know it, any 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 benefit that is paid to the household and any um, taxation taxation system that relies on the household income um, is problematic for the reasons that uh, Laura mentioned in terms of um, reducing employment incentives, particularly for uh, second earners, which tend to be women but also because it assumes that income um, or resources within, within a household are equally shared. And we know that that is not, uh, is not always the case. So it really matters who, who is receiving a particular benefit or particular uh, type of income. So um, coming back to, to child benefit. So child benefit in the UK uh, is, is a particular important source of income. Uh, for women because it is paid to the primary carer and that tends to be women so it is a source of independent income um, within households and uh, we know that because it is child benefit and it tends to be uh, paid to the primary carer it tends it is more likely to be spent on children um, <clears throat> and I think you know in the context of the cost of living crisis that uh, we have at the moment in which we know that large families, uh, single parent families have been particularly impacted, disproportionately impacted. Uh, and I think it's easy to see why, you know, if, if, if your costs of living increase, then, um, you know, lar larger families will be uh, more impacted because they have uh, bigger costs. Uh, and we, uh, we have been arguing that, you know, child increasing child benefit would have been a really targeted and simple and effective way to uh, support those 
who who have been disproportionately affected by this um, by this crisis. And uh, we've we've even uh, calculated that if you were if the UK government were to increase the child benefit to fifty uh, pounds a week, which is roughly double. Uh, what it is now, it would reduce uh, overall poverty in the population by around uh, a quarter. So it is it is a big impact uh, across the board, uh, and obviously it is particularly effective in lifting children out of poverty as well um, in households with with children. So it's we we estimated it roughly it would lift one million children out of out of absolute poverty. Uh, in the UK, so it is, it is an extremely um, targeted benefit uh, and and an effective one. <clears throat> um, when it comes to childcare and 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 childcare subsidies, I think these serve two different purposes. I would say so. Children's outcomes later in life, particularly from it's it's really important to uh, in in later life educational attainment, and then what you know the the knock on impacts of of that in terms of better jobs, uh, better social outcomes, health outcomes, and all of that. And then the second purpose of childcare is also uh, improving economic output, improving productivity in the economy by allowing uh, parents, particularly mothers, to uh, join the labor force or to increase the hours that they uh, spend <clears throat> uh, in paid work. But I, I, I would say that uh, the childcare the, the, the way to fund childcare that is most effective is through a supply side um, model rather than by giving subsidies to parents so that they can then you know pay childcare fees. And I think it's it's also to do in, in whether the, the government prioritizes or not, this type of spending um, comes back to how we see that and if in whether we see childcare as a cost or as an investment. And we very much argue that it should be considered an investment. It should be considered an investment in infrastructure because it, 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 it has an impact across the economy. It has an impact in the productivity output. Uh, you know, in the, in the spring budget uh, in the UK uh, this year, the OBR, which is the independent body that kind of scrutinizes the, the UK, um, the government's budget, they uh, mentioned that the plans for expanding childcare in the UK that the government announced were, were the measure that would have the most impact out of all the others that were um, announced that would have the most impact on economic output. Um, so I, I think that really sh uh, shows that uh, that type of spending has a, an impact that goes beyond its its users, its its immediate uh, users, um, and so I think spending on that kind of uh, subsidies or supply side um, <clears throat> uh, spending should should not be seen as a zero sum game. It should be seen as something that will you know improve um, the um, 
the outcomes for the children that will receive that sort of child that childcare. You will uh, improve the um, you will increase the um, the number of jobs as well uh, available in the economy, and you will mean that more women in particular will join the labor force. Uh, with all that entails, you know, um, more tax revenues, uh, less spending on social security because you have more people uh, earning. Um, and so we've we've actually done some some reach research uh, at the Women's Budget Group that shows precisely this: that when you invest in a universal, high quality, free childcare system, um, it it is self-funded by up to um, three quarters because of this kind of um, the fact that you create more jobs uh, in the sector and across the economy uh, and you uh, increase tax revenues and reduce your spending on uh, social protection as well. Um, and because of the, you know, of the division of unpaid labor, it also it contributes to reduce employment uh, gaps, employment gender gaps, and uh, the gender pay gap as well. Um, yeah, so we're, it, we're it so, is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, it's a no-brainer. Oh, thank you, it's a very compelling case. I think the, yeah, the universal quality childcare services, thank you for, for a very clear, clear case and, and links to, to evidence. Um, thank you, Sara. Flora, uh, turning to you and, and social protection, uh, and then your experience around the use of social protection in addressing uh, the employment and time poverty uh, among women in, in countries you've worked in. What, what works, what works less? Um, what are the ways forward? Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, it's also interesting to hear some of these discussions coming along. And as I was hearing, I was trying to uh, like think about what is going back home and um, with that, I just want to start by insisting that really the context makes a difference. You are discussing here about um, subsidies for um, care like women um, at work and um, child services and all that. And I'm here thinking that would never work in my country. Like you give subsidies that will never go directly to the, the care work because of the system, the way we have um, um, we are socialized. We are socialized in a way that um, in the rural and in the urban, what happens is totally different. This is more of an urban discussion where you have maybe more women working in the um, labor force where they would need some assistance at home. And um, they have been able to afford, like, it, uh, like um, care helpers are very affordable. Actually, they're paid very low to the point that it's a concern. They don't have those like uh, employment rights and um, um, the, the the working conditions. Of course, they also have their um, their other um, um, unintended consequences or like behaviors that are harmful sometimes to the children. You trust them. You live with the children. So it's a mixture of um, issues that have um, happened there to the point that we have been thinking: what should real work? Do we need to uh, maybe uh, strengthen this um, group of the population so that they are uh, more professional and they can work, they can be reliable, women can go to work, and then knowing there's someone who is capable, can take care of the children with the quality that they want and all that? Or should we just let um, 
uh, the women who are largely in the informal sector and we are promoting them to go to um, employment or um, uh, to paid work. But should we maybe promote them or like uh, develop or expand the informal sector so that they can get some benefits in a certain way and stay at home and um, work to like raise their children the way they wanted, they wish. So that is kind of like a trade-off. And uh, those are some aspects that we are still, um, we don't have the answers yet because much has not been uh, researched. And so we are in a, um, we are in curiosity to say much as we want more women in the labor market so they can get these benefits that come out of it, but we have this tradition and culture where you feel like you want to raise your child the way you wanted to raise, but then you don't have um, good helpers who can help you do that work. Now, what works, uh, what will be helpful? We still need research uh, on that. Connecting back to the same um, point um, on unpaid um, care work, we've been thinking on maybe piloting. There's some thinking um, and piloting on the um, what else can help to reduce uh, and redistribute the unpaid care work uh, burdens on, um, on women. Is it the technology that you mentioned, I think came in the discussion earlier, uh, simplified technology maybe that will help facilitate these women, reduce the time that they use um, to go fetch some firewoods, um, or do we want to do like water collection, rainwater harvesting, for instance, that will help them reduce the time to go fetch some water that is also has um, complications, sometimes they get abused because they took so long to go to fetch water and they have to really go for long. Sometimes they are exposed to rape issues. And so it's just a complicated matter that we still need to do some research on to see what will um, help or what will facilitate um, reduction on the unpaid care work. And also given the complication of the culturally we are used that women would go for, for fetching some um, water or firewood. How can we make uh, maybe uh, distribute that work among men as well so that they can support? For instance, can we do maybe renewable energy, simplified technology that can also facilitate um, a husband or father to also do some simple work in assistance to that so that can they reduce uh, the work for these women. So it's just a multifaceted um, aspect that needs um, uh, studying. We haven't had evidence on those aspects yet, but we, we know that there are big issues and there are um, aspects that need research. Maybe on um, generally on some of the um, what works in um, the overall poverty alleviation, um, particularly in linking with the um, like, um, government taxes and the transfers. Um, we have, as an example, in my country, as I mentioned earlier in my comment, um, a nationwide, like a large nationwide cash transfer program. What seems to have worked is a, uh, an overlap or combination of some um, sub-interventions. For instance, we do have a cash transfer with that, uh, which is conditional on education and health, so it's facilitating the human capital aspect. At the same time, there is um, public works where um, you, you get the cash transfers and then um, this is now the graduation model. You're supposed to get cash transfers and then during lean season, you are supposed, uh, you can work, you have the opportunity to work and gain some more income. And then at some point um, you are linked to the third component, which is the livelihoods um, enhancement, 
which um, helps them with the basic skills of savings, but also advanced level of um, doing business. And that is what is supposed to graduate them out of the program because then they have accumulated some capital and are able to be, make their businesses and um, live. And um, much of that hasn't happened um, yet. So we don't know if it's real uh, effective and is working, but this program is now has now moved into the second phase um, um, of 10 years. And um, there hasn't been, uh, there are some assessments to see like the impact generally and of which we see some impact, but what really works in terms of this overlap seems by the um, qualitative assessments and as we meet um, with these uh, beneficiaries, it seems um, or the evidence that it has been um, working. We really need like a, a national like um, survey or national evidence to say, yes, this is uh, really working. But from what we are harvesting here and there through some um, assessments, we do see that overlap working, particularly since um, the cash transfer that's given is um, really low. It's like, um, what pounds? Maybe six pounds uh, per month per household. And so if you're expecting this person getting this amount and then being able to save, accumulate assets and being able to be in the labor market or like have um, the assets as collateral to be borrow some money, do some more business and all that, it's not real um, working that uh, to that level. So it's really kind of like, minor, uh, not really minor, certain level of impact that we're seeing, but not these like big differences that we would um, wish to see. But um, uh, behavioral aspect of like saving is also um, overlapped with that as a sub-intervention to teach them how to make some savings based on what the little that you're getting, much as you can learn to save and be able to save, we expect when you grow and get some more, um, uh, money, you can even save more and do some more productive activities. Um, so much of um, that has been in what we call like a package, a combined or overlapping sub-interventions in this um, cash transfer program. So we do see um, um, green light, if I may say, though we cannot yet evidence, but I think it's better than those um, single, the silos we're talking about, like having just cash transfer or just public works. And this is not to also say it doesn't have some um, uh, unintended consequences. For instance, the public works, or maybe before I say that, just to highlight that, um, the, when, the, when the program was piloted, um, the money was given to, given to the head of the household and then um, during, after the, the pilot, that assessment, but luckily I was part of that, um, we learned that men were yeah, in African settings, men will be the head of the household. So they received that money on behalf of the family uh, of the household, but there were some misuse of the, of the cash on some uh, unintended program objectives. So the program decided to flip that and make the uh, women um, as much as possible, a woman will be the one managing that cash on behalf of um, the household. So we did see some, um, another assessment, we saw that there was some resistance at some point, but then in the end, they got used to it. And we do see some um, uh, 
more productivity, like productive use of the fund, because now it goes to the family. Although we also learned of some other issues, for instance, some families would negotiate, like a husband, wife would negotiate, okay, you give me 5,000, uh, this is two shillings, um, um, give me 5,000, and then you can use the rest of the money for, I won't bother you. So some of, uh, some women had to fall for that, to just avoid those inter-household conflicts, saying, okay, I'll rather uh, bend for that, agree to this agreement, just give her, give him this amount, and then, then I'm free to do the rest of the money uh, for the family use. And this is not to say women are angels, there are some, some, some of the issues, again, with them, but very, minimal compared to what uh, would have happened. And so for, for me, I usually use that as an example to say, we can make a, a, a flip, a change in the cultural norm, because that is something like a woman in the household being the manager and the father is there. It was like a, a difficult um, aspect that you wouldn't think would happen in an African um, family, but it happened. It just, uh, uh, the program decided to say, we want to make change, we want to see impact. Let's just decide to flip that way. And it came as you have to do this. And up, as, I, as I speak, we have like 83% of the beneficiaries um, being women. Maybe just last um, uh, aspect on this is to say, um, last but one is to link to uh, sorry to link to your point um, on uh, when you said specified child uh, benefit. You said it's a, a good independent benefit, which is good. But then I thought um, on these uh, like the women being the manager of the cash on behalf of the household. Real sometimes is taken as a benefit to women, but that is on behalf of the household. It doesn't go directly like that fund is not for the women to use which is usually um, 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 conflicting the thinking to say, oh, women, but, but it's for women, but they're benefiting. There are, there are a lot of issues that have come with that, uh, even increased the burden of work to women since they have to also do this additional work. It doesn't mean um, it's um, for them. The last one um, I wanted to say, um, uh, evidence-based uh, training or skills development. Um, is quite key and has um, um, made a change, made a difference uh, because some of these policies are there. For instance, we do have a procurement policy, pro public procurement policy, which has set like 30% of all services in different ministries of the government to be used or to be um, um, accessed and used by um, uh, vulnerable groups, including women. So that is there, that is thought. So, so they thought about it and said, oh, you know, there are some, these women, they can access this, and this is special for them. But then it's not utilized because women themselves do not know. Some people in the government do not know about this um, aspect. And so tapping into that opportunity has been difficult um, because maybe deliberately some would know and they want to make loopholes in the countries that system are not um, very strong some of the loopholes um, open up and people uh, maybe put their people and all those kind of things. But what I wanted to say is um, if there is evidence-based research that transitions into specific skills development, knowledge and awareness to those who are benefiting and to those who are to open up those opportunities, particularly for, for women, um, become very important uh, in making a difference.
Thank you. No, no, thanks, Laura. Uh, no, no, you've covered a lot of topics and, um, and, and, and also picking up on what others have said, really important things, including on some of the nuances around the objectives of supporting women into paid work while, of course, uh, pursuing an objective of valuing work that is undervalued, you know, that is hugely critical and may, ha may have low monetary value but has huge value to any care work, which is typically unpaid or low paid. And, pointing out many things, including or then, of course, in the details of policy, uh, what works, what doesn't work. Uh, what I think we should do now is move to the Q&A. So we'll be taking questions from the audience. I can, in the meantime, um, have a quick question from Julia Mascagni to Susan around, this is a, just a one around the, what source of data you used on the tax paid by men and women, the graph you showed, uh, if, you, uh, if you know that. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the publication, it's a government publication, yeah, so you can find I, it on OMS. Yeah. Exchange emails. Uh, the other question is a question by Hannah Lore around, you know, should tax policy even be used as a tool to correct gender inequality? I mean, this is something that comes up also in, in of course, in Laura's and Irene's paper, uh, we may want to again, address this in our round of responses. But are there any questions from the audience in the in the room? Okay. We'll take a, the round of questions and then we'll, we'll each speaker will we'll have a go at, at answering. Okay. Um, well, my question is related to the strength of fiscal policy, given the typologies that exist, which are really, really wide. Um, I think one strange thing that came out from the graph that Laura presented was China's decline in how do you mind that side by side progress in reducing poverty, right, since 1990 from 67% to 1% today, compare that with that graph that you, you have there. So if you see that maybe on a country to country basis, there are huge differences um, that explain the shifts rather than just fiscal policy, uh, which might not be enough. Um, another example would be fertility rate, right? You talked about the impact of, let's say, maternity leave on hours of work. So maternity leave for a woman who gives birth to just one or two children is different from, you know, having five children. So those other variables are really, really strong in ex explaining some of these results beyond just uh, the fiscal policy element. Um, I, I have just no comment or no questions, but comments. Um, uh, my first comment is about the, the, the point that Laura mentioned about uh, old age pensions, which are not particularly equalizing. But I think that it's important to separate contributory and non-contributory. No? So contributory, the evidence suggests they are more equalizing for several factors, and we can, we can discuss about this. No? So I think the distinction is important. And the other thing is that what Laura and Susan were talking about uh, maternity and paternity leave benefits, I think is very important because if you look at, I mean, of course, the discussion has been around uh, the UK experience, which is important. Uh, my work on developing countries show a, a, a distinct different picture. Uh, if you look at uh, child and maternity uh, benefits around, I would say the majority of developing countries uh, under 100 days, no, no benefits. So, and, and I think these are linked to labor laws and labor regulations because 
there are no systems or laws in place to facilitate what you describe, no? Finding a replacement in, in, in certain job positions. So there is no this structure that allows this mobility. It's very, it's very rigid systems, no? So I think it's not just about the, the systems of benefits, but also the labor laws that frame the way labor market functions. So I think this is a very important thing. And um, even experimental work in very few cases in developing countries show that maternity and paternity uh, benefits actually improve productivity by reducing, for example, a, you know, turnover and uh, training costs. And there's a lot of things that create, you know, incentives uh, for also women to be more productive. And, you know, it's not exclusively on women, also on men. And also the important aspects that men or oh, on children, uh, the important aspects that children benefit from being with fathers as well. No, so and there is also emerging evidence on this kind of behavioral aspect. No, uh, so this is one of the things. And and on the on the child benefit in the UK, you know, um, again, I'm not an expert on on industrialized countries, and and obviously not in the UK, but um, Nordic countries have a very long history of universal child allowances. No, and they are very very progressive, simply because although they are universal, if you look at the distribution of families, families with more kids are usually the poorer. So I think. You know, having means-tested or income-tested approaches are not necessarily the best in this case. Thank you, Martin. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think thinking about non-OECD countries, um, I think Laura's two slides and. Um, are really important to make you think about how far distribution is the problem and how far redistribution through fiscal means can alter that or just ameliorate it. And there are certain sort of um, transfer schemes which are trying to address issues like dowry in South Asia, um, dowry being a huge driver of gender difference um, in India, Nepal, and other countries. Um, similarly, if we think about the structural constraints we identified in the first session in terms of what the formalized economy does and what the informalized economy does, and this is more than just employment, then sort of women's participation in um, home production and subsistence agriculture is very large. And the treatment of that by fiscal systems is quite inconsistent. Access to agricultural support and subsidies and the treatment of income through agricultural work. So I think we need to understand how fiscal policy can influence the structural constraints and what needs to be done outside of fiscal policy that can be supported by good fiscal instruments in addition. Otherwise, yeah. Thank you, Martin. We have one more question here. Uh, hi, Pedan Fener, Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, so my question is, um, can do efforts by governments to broaden the tax base by reducing informality, does that have a gender impact? So the premise of that question is informal labor, whilst there are disadvantages, there might be some women-specific advantages in that 
it allows for flexible working, part-time working, maybe you can bring your kid to work, et cetera. So if the government wants to broaden the tax base by cutting down on the informal sector, is that gonna have a disproportionate impact on the welfare of women? Okay, great question. So thank you for, for the sets of comments and questions. We're gonna have a round of responses and I invite speakers to, um, to, to, well, to be selective. I mean, you can choose what you want to address and <laughs> you don't, don't worry about answering everything. Uh, and, and in that sense, also to emphasize the main points you want to, to, to you know, want to, to leave the audience with. I'll start with Alvin, who's on. Alvin, are you still there? Yes, yes, I'm still here. Uh, over to you. Yes. Thank you, thank you. I'll, I'll try to, to, to speak to the, I think the, the, the last the question that was posed by, by the last speaker, which I think is a really uh, a fundamental question because many a times um, when we discuss informality, particularly in the context of uh, the continent, we seem to have a very broad brush kind of putting everything in one box about what informality is, but what we notice that informality takes quite a kind of different facets we find in many African countries, lawyers and, 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 and other professions operate within, within the informal sector in that sense. People that own public transport, people that have rental houses, all those are part of the informal sector, including the people that are hawking goods on the streets and, and all that. So I think the first is really to try and, and, and make those, those distinctions. Uh, so that the solutions, we are not having a, a one-size-fits-all solutions that uh, can end up impacting, particularly on one on one sector, because the solutions were not kind of tailored to that. The second point I would like to make, I think, generally the effort to informalize um, is not only for for tax purposes. Um, we have seen efforts where, um, through uh, formalization, um, it contributes, for example, to access to credit, if you want to um, borrow money from the bank, you have a PIN number, an address, you have um, a microphone, if that's possible. Sorry, uh, the mic you, you're not able to hear me, maybe I should come a bit closer. The, the internet is a, little bit, is a little bit unstable. So I, I think um, informality, of course, has the advantage in terms of the effort to broaden the tax base, uh, and, and uh, that is only one side of it. The other side of it, I think, is what it does in terms of in creating an enabling environment for those that are operating in the in the shadow area to access to kind of either formal trainings, to credit, to and, and these other benefits that might en en enable them um, grow grow their business. So I think those for me will be the the, the, the two points. And and since probably this the last time I will have the floor. Um, I think it's also important to connect the, the domestic conversation. And I think the speaker from the previous um, panel did, for example, make uh, allusion to the conversation around the global dimensions of domestic resource mobilization in terms of how um, the global architecture particularly contributes to undermining the capacity of, 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 of countries uh, to, raise, to raise revenue. So making those connections between the fiscal the domestic tax policies that uh, countries need to put in place, but also how um, uh, the global systems can undermine uh, that, particularly when you look specifically on the taxation of the wealthy elite and also uh, the taxation through the corporate income tax 
those particular two um, aspects are very much exposed to a, an international financial system, which is really important to also bring in into the, into the conversation. Thank you, Alvin. Thank you so much. Sara, over to you. Uh, yes, so I will start with the, the online question about whether tax or fiscal mm -hmm. policy should be even used yeah. to address gender equality. And I would say, yes, yes, absolutely it should. I would say it is used too little, actually, or considered too little as a as a, a tool that could improve gender equality. But as Laura has made the point several times, it needs to be. We need to consider the system as a whole and not just think about a particular how a particular tax or a particular benefit will improve or or increase uh, improve gender equality or or actually have the the opposite effect. Um, <clears throat> And this is because you know tax revenues. If if we are um, if if we increase tax revenues through a progressive tax system, uh, that can fund not just uh, cash transfers, as we've seen, is 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 really important for uh, gender equality because women are more likely to to be on, on the receiving end of of those cash transfers because of their lower uh, incomes, but also because tax revenues can fund public services, and I think that is also a, an often disregarded um, tool or, or, or sort of investment that, that uh, states and governments can make uh, to improve uh, gender equality because we know that women rely more on public services uh, than men because of their caring responsibilities and the fact that things like childcare but also health, education, social care, all of these things reduce women's unpaid uh, work and also because women are the majority of, of the uh, public sector workers. And so if you, know, if you improve public services, if you spend more on public services, then you're also improving uh, women's incomes. Uh, on the maternity leave and parental leave uh, discussion, um, there were some very uh, interesting points raised. And I, I would say, for me, when it comes to parental leave and whether that can be something that, you know, improves gender equality, I think it, it's the crucial thing is, is how it is uh, shared between parents. Uh, we know that in countries where there is non-transferable months um, uh, dedicated to the second parent, usually the father, uh, that tends to have better outcomes when it comes to sharing more equally the, the uh, caring responsibilities for, for children. So I think that that's a, a big consideration when we're thinking about um, how to design parental leave. Um, on, the, on the comment about child benefit, um, I, I, I agree that I, I definitely think that means testing child benefit is not necessarily the, the best approach. And again, especially if that means test is done at the household level uh, and not, not at an individual because uh, a household that is high income on paper is not necessarily one where all the, its members um, you know, live comfortably. And as we've seen, if, if child benefit is a, a, um, an important source of income for many women, then if you are taking that away, that, that might pose a problem for gender equality as well. Um, Laura, over to you. Okay, um, 
Thank you. Maybe just to respond to your, your question um, on informality, if um, that can address women's um, empowerment and gender equality. Uh, if it was easy, it's just a straight yes. We can um, use taxes, increase, expand fiscal policy, and then to address informality. But um, the precaution is just to um, be very careful on how we define it, because in um, like in African countries, in my country, um, like what is informality and what are the benefits that comes to it? Is it just simply since you are not in the formal system of the government? If you are out, then you are an informal. And um, also, for instance, some women have complained that as soon as they register to be um, formal, if that's a definition, then you have all these different taxes that come um, with the small business that they start. So everything, they feel like it goes to the government. So it has to go, I mean, to the tax system. So it has to go um, as like a package of saying, if we want to um, expand informal sector and benefit women, how or which useful strategies can be used um, to be productive. So it takes a, um, a certain process, but the answer, the straight answer would be yes, but it needs a process and to be very specific um, so as to get um, good results. Maybe the final point you said we want to raise. For me, uh, for developing countries, it's all about um, uh, mobilizing national resources as other discussions have been so that uh, governments are able to do some, um, some testing and then um, conducting interventions that make a difference. Because some of these researches, I would say I've had a lot of um, some of these researches that have no action. And even when you go as a researcher, when you go to the field, um, some of these women citizens are just like tired. Like you come and ask us and ask and ask, and we don't see changes. We are on the same economic um, status. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? I gave an example earlier of um, a study that is financed by IDRC. We are studying on, we are doing an RCT on uh, public procurement participation for women-owned businesses. And actually we are doing an intervention at this point. Those women, you cannot, I cannot, um, um, emphasize how happy they have been to say, at least for once, there was a baseline that happened and there's someone who has come and they're educating us on something that we didn't know, something that we can tap into and then use that opportunity. So I think we need more and more of that. And that has to be with the government nationally owned resources because otherwise when you deal with the donor funding, then you have patchy patchy interventions that just end right there. So for me, that would be something that I would call uh, governments, developing countries, particularly to commit um, to. Um, so many interesting questions, Ray. So I can't possibly address all of them. So I'll just try and say a couple of things. I mean, I suppose, first of all, on the value of unpaid work, obviously, you know, I think that we all recognise the value of unpaid work is incredibly high and that actually going out to work may not mean you feel better off as a family because you may be giving up so many other things. Um, I think one of the things I think in today's discussion is that there's just so many, um, you know, there's so many multiple objectives. One is alleviating poverty, there's gender equality. Um, and I think 
one of the keys here is just ensuring that, you know, whilst we want to value women's unpaid work, we also want to make sure they have access to resources. So the sort of uh, issues around empowerment within the family, even if, um, are, I think are really important. Um, the other thing, I, I suppose, maybe just more broadly, just thinking about uh, gender equality, and this is perhaps, again, focusing on the UK or rich nations, is thinking about uh you know what we can do to promote it and one one of the things that occurs to me is that clearly there's there are some things that government can do around childcare, about leave but one of the things just to emphasize is that i think you know when we think about the penalty to having children the pay penalty to having children we know that it widens over time so it's not just about early you know when children are young actually the pay gaps are far far wider um you know when you've had children for a long time so when you've got teenagers or you know children of left home you're still going to be suffering from the consequences of the fact that your career was uh you know probably compromised by by having children so introducing policies around childcare, you know today don't really help address the the sort of issues of gender equality amongst women in their 40s 50s and, and so on and it, you know so really I think anything that's done today, you know, is going to have a very long term effect before those effects wash out. And I think that's really important to note. And the other thing I just wanted to mention is the. It's not just government. Um, I think there are issues about what happens when you have children. Um, clearly, there's lots of full time work experience, for example, um, uh, and that really matters for your career progression. Um, but in addition to this, this this stuff about mobility, and we know mobility in your early career is so important for career progression. And when you have children, your mobility effectively stops. <laughs> or um, and it doesn't just stop because you can't go and work, you know, in some new location or relocate, for example. But it also stops because even within your same employer, you don't have the job opportunities that you can then use to negotiate a pay rise. So I think there's issues around mobility, job mobility, uh, and so on that are really important. And I mean, certainly some of the work we we did suggest that women actually get kind of they get stuck. You know, once they have children, they might stay in the same job, they might carry on, but their, their effectively their ability to progress is kind of limited. So I think this idea of women getting stuck to me is, is quite important, even when they don't lose work experience, their ability to, to progress is limited. And I think there's probably things we can do from an employer side to think more creatively about how we might solve that problem. Do we really need people to you know, play the game of outside job offers to, to move on and so on? I mean, how do, we, how do we deal with that and other things that can be done at a firm level rather than um, relying on the state to kind of you know influence influence gender equality so I think that's quite important and then the final thing I want to say was just how much I agreed with Sarah's point about um, child benefit and supporting families and the needs they have and um, one of the things I also want to say I mean I very much favor child benefit um, and um, you know which deals with the needs of that you have if you have children but in addition I think we need to think about what we do about single people because I think we need to recognize the additional needs if you're single okay um. thank you so much Susan um Laura final, <laughs> final I think um I will I, I think this has been super super enriching and provoking as well I I when I was presenting about the role of fiscal policy one my last slide was about the importance of complementary interventions, uh, institutions, um, and that sometimes one fiscal policy could 
be complementary, generate social norms, but that you have to keep on working. So for example, what we said about unpaid work when you have kids, I think cannot be changed only from fiscal policies alone. You have to think how you change social norms and those social norms are not only how you do it in the household, but with firms and what, the, what type of jobs do firms offer? What, why is there such a high um, exponential return to have very long hours in flexible jobs, for example? So people that are able to be 24 seven for their companies are rewarded, I think beyond their experience, their, their um, skills and the time they put in. There is a preference for that. Is that real, really because they are so much more productive? Question mark, I'm not sure. Uh, and I think those type of questions are really important to change the dynamics of how we work, how we make it family friendly, not only for mothers, but for fathers, that also someone, if there is such a high return to working 24 seven, one in the household will have to specialize because you cannot do both things at the same time. If you have a family, someone has to look at the family and it, it pays off to be totally inflexible. It's, to some extent that would happen. I think nonetheless, there are many, issues with uh, social norms that are very puzzling for people that have been studying the impact of fiscal policies in countries like uh, higher income countries that even when with great expansion of childcare services, universal quali high quality and shared parental leave, mothers that used to earn more and have better educations that fathers in heterosexual couples end up doing more unpaid work when they work and end up earning less after they have kids. So clearly there's something quite puzzling there uh, and people are continuing to, to explore that. And I think in lower income countries, I agree with culture and social norms are completely different, but from what you said, you think it would be good to change some of those social norms. So I think we have to think a bit harder uh, in that area as well. And I agree, maybe the way is not just to outsource all care to the state. I'm not sure we want that as a society, but maybe just thinking how we organize it inside the household and as a society, maybe differently. It's quite challenging. Maybe in another conference we discuss about yeah, it more. Well, this is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just one of, of many um, conversations that, uh, that obviously are, are building on past conversations, but are on future ones as well. So I'm I'm so um, grateful to all of you that participated today, particularly to our uh, the speakers that, that kindly agreed to contribute to this discussion. As you know, I mean, as we mentioned at the outset, this is what, we, what we've talked about today is part um, of a much larger program of work that ODI is taking forward um, with support from the Gates Foundation, from FCDO, and in collaboration also with the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, so there's work coming through, also from a truly strategic level, as you may or may not be aware, but the ODI strategy has as one of its priorities. Um, I'm going to read the exact priority. <laughs> no, because it's no, because this is at the heart of it, is fostering a more equitable economic order, including gender inequality and gender equality. So this, this is an ongoing conversation. Uh, just for your diaries, do put into your diaries an event on September 20, September 26th, 27th, a public finance conference, which will include um, mentions and elements of what we've talked about today. Uh, but again, thank you so much, and let's keep this conversation and, and, and the research analysis and policy discussion going. Thank you.